Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. As I said last Sunday, we are entering a new section of Galatians this morning. Uh, Three sections, there's an introduction, three sections, and a conclusion to the letter. So we've made it through the intro and the first two sections, and now we're starting application. So we've been in uh, some heavy material for a while, now we're starting application. So we're going to do then today what I normally do at the beginning of a new section. We're going to read the entire section. This will be the only time I do this. But we're going to read from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 10, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at Galatians 5, 1, follow along as I read. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we come and we just repeat the truths that we sang a moment ago that we can't do anything. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. And Lord, we do need you. We don't think that all the time. In fact, I would say we probably live the vast majority of our Christian lives as if those statements are no longer true, but they are still true for us today. And so I pray through our time in your word this morning that you will just remind us of those things, that you will challenge us and prepare us to be changed in the weeks ahead through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by sharing just some personal uh, thoughts and reflections on our last few weeks or months, I guess it is now, here in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. And I'm going to do this from three particular perspectives. They're not necessarily in an order, just the order I wrote them. So first, from a preaching perspective, can I just say I'm kind of glad to be done with this section? That's from a preaching perspective, that is, or I've been very specific here. And I'm sure maybe as a listener, you might be glad to be done with that section as well. I don't know. But I, I can't think of another extended passage of Scripture. I mean, this was two full chapters, two plus a little bit, full chapters where a, the, the argument is so complex and so deep and, and involved, and at the same time, B, where there only is, throughout the entirety of the passage, one main point that you just keep coming back to over and over and over again. For the life of me, I tried to think of it this week, but I could not think of any comparable section of Scripture, at least of not of this length. So, so what I mean by this was, you know, it was kind of difficult each week to come back to the same passage of Scripture. You're looking at very difficult things. You're trying to explain them, make them clear, and at the end of each time go, hey, guess what? Uh, the application today is the Old Testament law can't save you. Okay, only faith in Christ, only grace alone, not the law, so you know, that's it. And I could say that in different ways, and I tried. I tried to reword it, but it was always the same. Even the commentaries I was reading uh, were having problems with <laughs> that same thing. Because normally in a commentary, you'll read it, and it'll give some information on the text. It'll explain things to you, bring up questions or issues that you probably should think about. But generally, in some way, shape, or form, whether a lot or a little, there's some point where they'll go, you know, this is kind of where this is headed. This is how you should think about it. And uh, in a lot of my commentaries, it ended up being like, we've already said this before. Look back to previous section. Well, that's fine for commentaries, but that doesn't work for a sermon, unfortunately. I can be like, you know, listen to the last five minutes of the sermon three weeks ago, and that's your application this week again. Thank you, and we'll just keep doing that. Uh, just wasn't fly. So, so it's been hard from that perspective. Um, you know, when it comes to the application of Scripture, I've never been 
very creative, uh, just not my area of expertise in, in a sermon context particularly. My preference has always been to try to use whatever I felt the author's intent was for writing in a particular passage and try to mimic that in terms of application. So like for here, as an example, the writer's trying to correct their wrong thinking about the gospel, their wrong understanding of God's plan of salvation for a, as a whole. And so that's how I typically applied it as well. And that's just what I've been doing throughout the section. So I'm sorry if I've sounded like a broken record. I apologize. Wasn't intentional necessarily, but, but that's just where we were at. Secondly, from the perspective of my own theology, I would say that I haven't been this challenged by a passage of Scripture in a long time. Like, I mean, it has, it has eaten me up one side and down the other just personally, uh, trying to go through it and understand it and think about it. And I could probably take the rest of our time together this morning on this point alone, but I'll just summarize with two specifics. Uh, one that I will good-naturedly and in just pure fun uh, make one group of the side of the room upset and one that will make the other side of the room upset as well all at the same time. First, uh, I feel like I understand the story of the Old Testament better than I ever have. I mean, just from these few months of looking in Galatians, I feel like my understanding of the Old Testament has changed dramatically. Um, I already knew that when we read the Old Testament, we're supposed to read it through the lens of Christ. I mean, that's clear. That's obvious. We come back to that, and that never changes. That's always primary. What I wasn't as appreciative of is how important it also is to read it through the lens of Abraham. You've got to read it through that lens of what God is doing with Abraham there in Genesis if you're really going to get the whole thing and have it make sense together. Those are two bookends that Paul repeatedly tied together uh, throughout this section. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to take those connections farther than uh, we should. That's, I think, one of the weaknesses of covenant theology. For my covenant theology friends in the room this morning, and you are friends indeed, I think that the desire to be consistent uh, with itself, and in the desire to be consistent with itself, Covenant theology tends to sometimes push things farther than it needs to and draw connections maybe that don't need to be made. And if you're bothered by that critique, hold it for a moment because, second, I can also now say that uh, if there is a parenthesis in God's plan for the world, it is not the church, it was Israel. And that's a little dig at my dispensational friends in the room. And again, you are friends indeed. Uh, if you're totally lost right now about what I'm, I'm talking about and having a little fun with for a moment about covenant, theology, and dispensationalism, uh, I'd explain it just simply like this. These are two different systems for understanding the connection, the relationship between Israel and the church and what God is doing kind of in this world as a whole. That is a big oversimplification of a very complicated issue, but it gives you at least an idea of what it's all about. Uh, the folks on the covenant side tend to see a lot more overlap and connection and, and points of continuity between Israel and the church. And so because they see that, they believe certain things and live that out in certain ways. Dispensationalists tend to see less of that. In fact, they tend to see a lot more separation between the two, and so they believe certain things and live out certain ways. And it's just one of the great rivalries of the theological world, right? It's like Michigan and Ohio or the Bears and the Packers, Yankees and Red Sox kind of thing. Uh, everybody's got a camp, whether they know it or not. Uh, you likely grew up being taught from one perspective or the other, even if you're not personally aware of where you stand today. For me, I grew up in dispensationalism, and I regularly heard people talk about the parenthesis of the church age, as if God's greater plan for the world was Israel, and because Israel rejected him, he sort of interrupted his plan, put a parenthesis in, we call it the church, but you know, eventually that's going to come to an end, and he'll get back to what he was really trying to do all along. That's not 100% a fair explanation, but it gives you the idea. I would just say uh, no to that. If there was a parenthesis in God's plan at all, it was Israel and the law, 
God always had a plan to save humanity. That was always the plan. And so, uh, sorry, that's going to mess up your dispensationalism a little bit. Can, can I make a plea to you? I'm being, I'm being good-natured. I really promise I am. Can I make a plea to us all, regardless of which team you cheer for, what jersey you wear? I don't really care. Go wherever Scripture goes. How about that? Just go wherever Scripture takes you. When you're studying, when you're thinking through things, when you're trying to wrestle through questions, because these are real questions. These issues haven't come up in a, a vacuum. People haven't arrived at their positions without reasons. So when you come to them, though, just go wherever Scripture takes you, because here is an undeniable truth of all theology, all theology. You ready for it? You've got to believe this. We've got to be on the same page on this one. Anything man comes up with is flawed. Only Scripture is perfect. That's it. I don't care how faithful you're trying to be, you personally, in your own life, how faithful you try to be to Scripture, you are not a perfect theologian, okay? You don't have every answer right, nor do I. So I don't have this figured out. I can't tell you exactly where to go, what to do with all these things, but I have been challenged just personally, theologically, uh, through these last two chapters of Galatians, just to see and understand the story of the Old Testament differently, and I hope you have as well. But finally, from a heart perspective, and again, I'm just speaking very personally here, um, I guess I would say that I have been kind of uh, dissatisfied. I don't know what the best word to use here is. I used dissatisfied in the first service. I'll use it again now. I've been dissatisfied uh, for a while now here in Galatians. As you know very well, Paul is talking to a group of people who are considering either turning or returning to the Old Testament law in order to find their acceptance before God. And he's pleading with them throughout this section, don't do that. And I've alluded to this several times now over the past few weeks, that there's probably a part of our hearts that when we read this kind of a section of scripture, we look at it and we go, okay, that's great. That's their problem. It's not mine. Like I've never been tempted to turn back to the Old Testament law. For uh, As far as I can remember, uh, no one has either directly or indirectly, either personally or even in a preaching session I've ever been in, suggested that I, in order to be saved, had to put faith in Christ and keep the Old Testament law. I've never heard that. I can't think of a time I've ever heard that anyway. So, so there's a part of me then that when I look at this, I go, yeah, I don't, I've never experienced what they're experiencing. I don't think I ever will. And yet, at the same time, as we've been working through these two chapters, man, there is something in those two chapters that sounds really, really familiar to me. Like, it's like, you know, hitting my heart in a certain way, and, and you know, you want to address that and kind of answer some questions about it, but we haven't, Paul hasn't been doing that for us yet. He's just been attacking the problem, problem, problem. That's all he's been doing, attack, attack, attack. So we haven't been able to address any of that until today. I want you to meditate with me for just a few minutes here this morning on the opening line of chapter 5 here, verse 1, where he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And I want to ask you a question that you certainly should not answer out loud when I ask it, uh, nor do you even have to answer it right this moment. Okay, You can hear the question, you can go through the entire sermon, then you can go home and think about it all week long. I'm okay with that. But I got to ask you because I think it's important. Do you really understand and believe this truth? Do you really understand and believe this highlighted truth behind me here? First, do you even understand what it means when Paul says that Christ has set you free for freedom? Have you ever even thought about this concept? 
you know, free, freedom from what? Freedom to what? Like, what sense are we talking about freedom? What, is, what does this idea even mean? It's obviously a big deal as he's getting ready to, to begin applying everything that he's been saying to these Galatians. This is his opening comment that is simply going to get worked out again and again and again throughout the rest of, of his application section. So do you even understand it? And then secondly, do you really believe it? And again, do not answer this out loud. I ask it for you to contemplate yourself by, but as you do an instant assessment of your heart, your life right now, would you say you're free? Are you living in freedom today based on what you understand freedom to be? And you say, well, maybe that's the problem. Maybe I don't, maybe I don't understand what freedom really is. Okay, fair enough. That's why we have to start with understanding and not believing. But, but regardless, I would say that this question, you know, do you really understand and believe that Christ has set you free for freedom is not being asked today either to encourage you, maybe to give you a shot in the arm that you're doing the right thing, nor am I asking it to discourage you, to try to convict you and show you where you're falling short. I ask it merely as an assessment question. It's intended simply to reveal. Because my assumption going into this new section of Scripture is that the vast majority of Christians in this room, in the 9 o'clock hour, in churches across our country— regardless of how long they've been saved, whether it's been a month or it's been a hundred years, it wouldn't matter, is that they do not really understand and believe the freedom that they have been given in Jesus Christ. Okay, that is my assumption. Now, maybe that assumption is unfair. Maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe I'm just projecting my own insecurities onto you guys. I don't know. Maybe I'm alone in this. But I don't think that's going to be the case because... I believe that we have much more in common with the Galatians than we may have ever previously thought up to this point. Now, sure, I already said this. We may never have been approached by someone who was attempting to get us to walk away from our confidence in Christ alone and look to the Old Testament law for salvation. I highly doubt that has ever happened. But I have a sneaky suspicion that most of us in this room, myself first and foremost, somewhere Deep down, maybe not so deep down, it depends on the person, the scenario, but somewhere in our hearts, we believe and live as if there is some kernel of truth in what it was the false teachers in Galatia were saying. As if there is something about that law, something we need to do, something, ooh, there's something there, and we kind of gravitate to it. And I can hear the objection instantly that might pop up in your heart and mind, no, Stacey, that's not true. I don't believe that for a moment. I know we cannot earn or deserve our salvation before God. There's nothing in me that could ever merit God's favor. It is totally by his grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, that we're saved. And if that's what went through your mind, then praise the Lord. I believe you. I believe that's what you think. And I'm not questioning that in any way, shape, or form. But, and there's always a but after a comment like that, uh, my suspicion stands as stated for two reasons. And I want to share those with you. First... My suspicion stands as stated because I understand the human heart a bit, being, if you didn't know, human myself. And I know how easy it is for us to, on the one hand, genuinely affirm our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And on the other hand, at the same exact time, struggle continually with believing that we are fully accepted in Christ based on nothing more than faith. I mean, continually. For some people, for some of you, it's daily. 
some it's weekly, some it's monthly, some occasionally. But I think, I can't imagine there's a believer in this world who does not, from some time or another, to, you know, struggle, wondering whether or not God accepts me as I am right now. Because what will more likely happen is they will more likely, you know, here's the, the classic about they'll more likely think that, that maybe God is happy with me today because I was obedient. I did what he wanted today. So God is happy with me today. He accepts me today. Oh, today I didn't do what God wanted. I was disobedient. Oh, so now God's angry with me. He doesn't, he'll reject me. Up and down and up and down and up and down. And this is the continual battle and struggle, I think, within many of our hearts. And it just seems to me that for many people, and I think probably most, if not all, they struggle with the very thing that Paul talks about in Philippians 3 where he talks about going back and rebuilding a righteousness of his own through the law. And you say, well, Stacey, I've never tried to go back and build a righteousness of my own through, through the Old Testament law. No, I get that. Maybe you've tried to do it through some other law, a law of your own making, a law that you've created that you think will make God happy. But whatever the case, I just think we're more ponder, or prone excuse me, to wander in this way than we realize. Now, let me be very clear. That doesn't mean that if you struggle with that kind of thinking, that those doubts, that you're not a believer. I'm not saying that at all. That's not the point. If you think that, then you've missed everything I'm trying to say. I just think that we're, uh, Paul's words in Philippians 3 are so convicting and helpful to us because he says there to the Philippians, it's like, I don't want to be found having that righteousness of my own through the law. And I said, well, why would Paul say such a thing? Is it not because that's, that's his own heart's tendency to go back to that? So he says, instead, I want to be found with a righteousness of, uh, my, of, not my, of my own doing, but a righteousness that only comes through faith in Christ. And then he repeats it in a different way. He says, I want to be found with the righteousness that depends on faith. And that, that right there, the righteousness that depends on faith, that is the struggle I'm talking about. Because truth be known, um, I want to depend on me for salvation, not Jesus. I do. That's what I want. I want to be good enough. I want God to accept me as I am. I want to be able to, to be worthy of it. That is what I want. You know why? Because I am a son of my father, Adam. And I get to see the fall of the garden play itself out every day in my heart, rejecting God's rule and reign and wanting to establish myself as king every day, every moment of every day. It's always there. I want to depend on me, not Christ. And maybe I'm just looking for sympathy and company here, but I don't think I'm alone in that struggle. And so my suspicion that we have more in common with the Galatians than we realize stands because I know the human heart a bit, and I know how easy it is for us to, on a daily basis, want to go back and somehow in our hearts and minds establish a righteousness of our own before God through a law. Some law, some kind of law. Second, my suspicion stands as stated because I think we have built an unbiblical wall between our view of salvation and our view of sanctification. I think we've built an unbiblical wall between the two. Most of us, I would assume all in here, would again affirm wholeheartedly and genuinely believe with all their heart that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it is not according to our works, that it is according to his own purpose and grace. But somehow, despite genuinely believing that, 
we get to the other side of that wall we built and we think, all right, I better get to work sanctifying myself. Now, that may be a little uncomfortable because you're like, I never think that. I get it. You never say it. You never say it. You never verbalize it. You never think it actively in the way I just stated it. But I think that's a pretty fair assessment for most Christians. I could be wrong. Salvation may be, by, may be by grace, but sanctification is very much by works in many of our minds. And so how do we typically do this? Well, uh, not shockingly, based on what we've seen in Galatians, we turn to a law. Well, Christians should do this, and Christians shouldn't do this. And because we know that's true, we start making lists. And, and we're, not, we're not arbitrary in these lists. We're not trying to be uh, sinful in these lists. Where do we turn? Well, we turn to the Old Testament. I'll turn to the law and see God's moral and ethical standards, his character and nature, and how I should live and how I shouldn't live based on that. We turn to the words of Jesus, and we look at all the things he said to us, and we turn to the New Testament letters, and we find Paul's teaching, and Peter, and John's, and we listen to our godly parents, I hope, and godly pastors and churches, and we even work through our own conscience in relation to things that come at us that maybe aren't directly addressed in Scripture, and we try to apply biblical truth to them. And we get done with this entire process. And next thing you know, we've got it. Boom. There's your list. There's your list. And then what happens then quite often because of our hearts being so sinful, we turn to the list. As long as I keep the list. I didn't do these things today. I did do these things today. Huh. I, I feel good today because I know I, I live my list well. Oh, I feel so guilty and ashamed today because I live my list so poorly. And then we teach it to our children. Not purposefully. We don't even think about it. And we build our churches around it. And, and then we start judging our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether or not they live up to our list. We, we don't even think about it. It's so second nature to us to do it. So we may not live as if the power of salvation is found in works of the law, but I would almost bet my life on the fact that the vast majority of us have lived in the past and may be living right now, myself included, as if the power of sanctification is found in works of a law. Or to say it another way, I think we just took the Galatian problem and we moved it. I mentioned that we built an unbiblical wall between the ideas of salvation and sanctification. These aren't separate, like they're like worlds apart. You got to get on a plane to get from one to the other. These things go together. But we separated in the sense, so we took the problem of the Galatians, like, oh, we would never do that. Let's throw it on the other side of the wall. We don't have to see it so clearly. It looks good, right? It does. It looks good when we can live our lives that way, and we become quite satisfied with that. This is why I think we have or may have much more in common with the Galatians than we've thought up to this point, and this is why I'm questioning whether or not we really understand and believe the statement that is highlighted here behind me, that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. As I said at the beginning... There's something about what Paul's been saying all along. I'm not, not going to ask you if I'm the only one who's felt it, but it's been, it's been hitting something. All these comments he's been making, all these arguments, maybe not at the, the level of salvation, but it's still, it's still hitting something, and it feels familiar. It feels, it feels like it's something we've dealt with before, like something I've dealt with before. Maybe it's felt like something you've dealt with before. And in a way, it's felt dissatisfying to wait until now to address it, but we're finally here. This is the situation as I see it, and this is the foundation and assumption 
from which I'll be approaching the text here in the weeks ahead. But please understand, folks, please, 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 please understand. I, 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 don't, I don't have the answers to all the questions you're going to ask me. Or you're going to be sitting there wondering. Because you've got them right now. I know it. Right now, you're already going down the line of like, what are you doing? I feel like, you know, I've been doing this for weeks now, like working through this, knowing this was coming. And I'm like, you know, I feel like today, I'm just being very, very honest with you. And I'm, it's, it's frustrating for me to say such a thing, but it's true. I feel like today I have more questions about the things you're asking than I have answers. I'm just being straight up honest with you. I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm struggling with how to apply all that stuff personally, not, not to mention having to stand up and try to explain it to, to us as a church body, and I do not feel capable or qualified uh, of walking us through this, and I'm sure that's a good thing and probably speaks poorly about my past preaching, or if I did feel capable or qualified, I shouldn't have. All I know what, how to do at this point, both in my own life and for you, is to ask you to do two things that I'm doing, okay? It's the exact two things that I'm doing right now as we get ready to walk in this. Number one, I want you to examine yourself spiritually, spiritually, in relation to the things I just talked about. Now, I know that some of you, hopefully it's few, but it may be many, um, some of you are not in the practice of, of spiritual self-examination. You're just not. You'll spend an hour in front of the mirror throughout the day checking your hair and your uniform and your clothes and your teeth and making sure you look presentable or look the way you wish you could look, whatever the case may be, and, and you assess your money and you assess your other things in life, but to assess your soul, that's like unheard of. So I get that, that that might be a weird thought for some of you, but but there is no more important thing you can assess than that. Where are you right now? Where is your spiritual life right now? Are you living in the freedom that Christ has purchased for you and you're sitting there going, I don't even know what that means, okay? Or are you abusing the freedom that you do know you have? Uh, are you trying to rebuild a righteousness of your own and maybe you weren't even aware of it? Are you, are you growing in Christ's likeness? Uh, how are you growing? Do you, do you even have a desire right now? I'm not talking about like a year ago, a month ago. Right now, do you even have a desire for spiritual things? And if you say yes to that, how would you show that to anyone privately or publicly? Not that you need to, but just how? If you had to prove it, how would you prove it? I don't know what answers you're going to find or if you'll find answers at all to some of those questions. But I, I would ask you this week to begin examining your soul, examining your spiritual life in light of what we're talking about here. Because reality is I think a lot of us, a lot of us, more than we even realize, are guilty of what I just described, either thinking that we can rebuild a righteousness of our own or just thinking that we can sanctify ourselves by pulling a, you know, ourselves up by our own bootstraps, just working harder, more self-discipline, more self-control, and I can move forward and be more like Jesus. Eh, no, no, no. You can't, you won't, it never will work that way, I promise you. And so examine yourself. And then secondly and finally, pray. Just pray. You know, I, I continue to affirm what I said, I think for the first time two or three years ago now, um, that prayer is the most powerful thing you can do in any given context. It's easy to say, hard to believe. It is. And I didn't believe it this week even. No, I'll be brutally honest again. I didn't believe it this week. This week I found myself at a point sitting there like, what's the point of praying? What's the point, God? You're not going to answer. What's the point? I sit there and deny the very thing I just said to you. Again, I'm a hypocrite. I am. 
But I was reminded, when I am faithless, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. And um, so I cry out, right? I cry out with the father of the dead boy in Mark 9. Lord, I believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief. I I don't even know how to pray sometimes other than that. I believe, but help my unbelief, God. I am too weak. And so I am praying that God will open my eyes to understand and believe the freedom that we have through faith in Christ and by the power of the Spirit, not by any law. And, And as we do this, man, I don't... I don't want cliches. I don't want a, like some party line from this group or that group or this movement or that movement or anything else. Like, I want the scriptures to speak for themselves. Just, God, take us where you want to go. Where you want to go? Just do it. Whatever, whatever you want to do, do it. And so I would ask you to pray the same, to pray that God will take in your heart the scriptures wherever he needs them to go, reveal whatever he needs them to reveal, Change whatever needs to be changed and make us dependent on Jesus and the Spirit no matter what. Would you bow your heads now and let's pray that together as a church body. Father, we we come because we have nowhere else to turn. We are so prone to think that somehow on our own we can make ourselves acceptable before you, whether it's for salvation or sanctification. It, It doesn't seem to change. We are rebels. We are Adam's children. And I see it over and over again in my own heart. And Jesus, you've come to set us free, but I think we have too small of a view of what that means. I don't don't know that we've really thought it through. Free from what? And free to what? What, what What is the freedom here? And how is it supposed to be lived out? So these are questions that are not easy, and it would be very easy just to fall back on cliches and traditions, but... I want us to understand it as best we can, and we're, we, we, are too, we are too weak and foolish. Only you can help us. Only you can make these things clear. Spirit, only you can work in our hearts to make us like Jesus. And so we come and we beg. We beg and we ask and plead that you will do the very thing that you said you predestined us to do. You predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son. And so that's our prayer. And I pray, Lord, as we spend time this week assessing our own hearts and souls, that you will show us maybe just how little we really do understand about all of this so that you can teach us and train us in the days ahead. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.